Welcome to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum Podcast, where we speak to members and ask them to share some property industry insights and at the same time, get to know our industry colleagues a little better. My guest today is Max Schiffman, CEO at Intrapac Property and UDIA National President. Intrapac Property is one of Australia's largest private developers. Max's focus is on the continued successful delivery of Intrapac's property portfolio and the pursuit of new opportunities and growth. After studying civil engineering and law at Monash University, Max's experience covers broad aspects of residential development from large-scale subdivisions, integrated townhouse developments and apartments. Max's proudest achievements include receiving the UDIA Victoria Young Professional Award in 2013 and being part of the team responsible for delivering Intrapac's multiple UDIA Excellence award-winning projects, including Somerville, White Rock Ripley and Kinley, the former Lilydale Quarry Redevelopment. In whatever spare time he has left after all of that, he's also a bit of a fitness fanatic. Thanks for joining us on the Development Drum today, Max. My pleasure. Great to be here. Now, Max, um, talk us through your current role and how you got to where you are to date. Well, yes, I'm the CEO of Intrapac Property. So I've only been in the CEO role since June this year, but I'm coming up to nearly 12 years at Intrapac. So quite a ride. And look, I was fortunate to join a really successful, well-run, but arguably slightly smaller business at the time. Uh, you know, a number of projects that we had was not as great as what it is now. And then over the last decade or so, we've really expanded our footprint uh, really around the country, but also probably focusing a bit more out of our traditional home, which is Victoria, and, and have focused a lot on that Queensland and northern New South Wales corridor are somewhere that we like to operate. As I mentioned, yeah, 12 years in Intrapac, added off for the DM and then an SDM, and I was the uh, Chief Operating Officer for some eight years before I took over the CEO role this year with David and uh, an executive chairman stepping into the executive chairman role and taking only a very small step back. He's still very active in the business, but day to day, buck stops with me. Yeah. And how's that transition been, Max? Pretty smooth given your, your time in the business? Yes, it has. I mean, we've been talking about it for a number of years. That was a fairly clear succession plan. The question was what the right timing would be. And I suppose, you know, without giving too much away. David turned a particular age this year. 21. Uh, and yep. 21 with, with experience. <laughs> Plus, he um, he was fortunate enough to be awarded one of the Queen's Honours this year in AM. Fantastic. And in fact, was awarded it the day before she passed away. Oh, wow. So, there you go. One of the last Queen's Honours. But yeah, that was a, a nice moment for us to, uh, to transition as well. Yeah, fantastic. Now, Max, one thing that strikes me about Intrapac, and I know that we find incredibly valuable from a a UDIA perspective, Intrapac operates across a number of states, which provides you with a really critical bird's eye view of various policy approaches across the states. What do we do well in Queensland? Well, when I get asked these sorts of questions, I like to put in the terms of least worst. Every jurisdiction has its challenges. Some are more challenging than others, but no one's doing it perfectly. I would say that Queensland's one of the less worst jurisdictions to work in. That's what we're aiming for, Max. That's Yes. Yeah. There's always improvements that are possible. But a lot of that, I think, comes from a relatively clear planning scheme, which isn't as clear in some other parts of the country that we operate in, and generally a better processing time 
for new applications. And I think that partially comes down to slightly more centralized system when it comes to authority referrals, and that's highly valuable. But also having, I think, the larger councils makes a big difference because you just get councils that are equipped with the right level of resourcing to run the sorts of projects that we're undertaking, whereas you find in other areas around the country, councils can be quite variable. And so the smaller ones or the ones that don't necessarily have that level of development growth find it much harder to actually get through applications and get through processes. So that time or lesser time is quite valuable to us. And where's there room for improvement, Max, in Queensland? Well, I think you've got a real land supply issue and I don't think that's a a secret. We've been talking about it for a long time in the industry and certainly for me there appears to be a disconnect between some of the government data around land supply versus what's actually feasible to develop. And that's going to cause some real challenges into the future, I think. And what does that mean for you on the ground at the moment, Max, when you're looking for sites to buy? It's obviously incredibly competitive out there. There seems to be this, we're going through this really difficult stage where the new growth areas, the next generation of growth areas aren't immediately obvious. And we do have this heavily constrained underutilized urban footprint that sits between those growth areas and the the consolidation areas as well. So there are challenges out there, but what does that look like in terms of an acquisition strategy for Intrapac? It's a great question because it's there's no simple answer to that. There are landowners out there that I'm sure we and many other developers have spoken to over the years who just want to hold out even though their land is sort of developable. And that's their rights, their land, they can do what they like with it, but it prevents a lot of developable land coming to market in a timely manner. And so what we've seen the last little while is that real, you know, that push for competitive sites and therefore increases in cost and price at the end of the day. And so that's now playing out, certainly in SEQ to a very large extent, where prices have had to sort of increase due to the higher price of developers having to pay for sites. We compete like everyone else, sometimes developers have more optimistic views than we do in terms of the longevity of a market and are prepared to pay that premium for it. You know, we're very happy with our existing project portfolio, but we're obviously very open to new opportunities even when they come up. And of course, Max, you mentioned before that land supply crisis, which has a really human face that we've always known, but it is particularly visible throughout Queensland at the moment and other areas of Australia. How do we get ourselves out of this situation? There's no silver bullets, there's no low-hanging fruit or short-term, near-term solutions. So where do we start? Well, you're right, it is something that's impacting us around the country. You're not unique in the sense that there is a real problem challenge that we're facing around the country to deliver new housing in a timely and affordable manner and there are all sorts of reasons for it but you know at an industry level we've obviously been talking about supply constraints for a long time and they are very real and we're getting to the point now where the warning bells that we've been sounding for some time are now at the point where they're no longer warning bells it's actually on the ground you know we've been saying these things are going to happen for a while and the system's collectively haven't been able to keep up or want to respond for all sorts of reasons. And so you end up with, in many cases, insufficient zone land or zone land that is there but constrained and therefore the actual capacity to deliver something isn't there. That could be anything from increased vegetation mapping, which is you know, causing issues in, in many parts of the country, but even just having enabling infrastructure 
a lot of the time you'll have an area that's designated for growth, but actually getting to it is is not possible for all sorts of infrastructure reasons. And again, this is something that's playing out around the country. And then even if you do have land that's accessible and, and serviceable and unconstrained, you've then got this problem of actually getting it through the detailed planning system. And we're just finding it that capacity is not there. It's particularly not grown as the complexity of the planning systems has grown. And so you're just seeing timeframes blow out so much longer. And that's before you even consider what's happened through the pandemic. And so there are so many things that are happening. It feels like from a policy perspective, governments love throwing out the demand side drivers. Here's a grant for you and a deposit guarantee for someone else. But they never want to deal with the root of the problem, which is actually fixing planning systems, making them robust, making them able to respond to spikes in demand in a much more timely manner. You need to bring that time from a house being needed to a house being delivered right down to make it a a more effective market. Yeah, we often talk about the need to have a resilient planning system. So when there are spikes or unintended surges in terms of demand, that the planning system is the enabler, not the thing that restricts that supply from getting to market. So you're absolutely right. We're not responsible or adaptable in terms of those systems. Now, speaking about demand, which has been incredibly strong over the past two years, and you would have absolutely been at the forefront of seeing that across each of those key markets that Intrapac operates within, you can't pick up the paper any morning without reading the words recession, inflationary pressures, interest rate increases. What do those headwinds mean for the industry? Well, we're going through a, a very tricky time after you know, what was a fairly buoyant period, but also one that was actually really difficult at the same time. You know, We saw prices escalate fairly quickly, but we also saw cost escalate and timeframes expand. And so it hasn't been a free kick by any stretch to anyone. We've had to work harder and harder to get things completed and still catching up. And I think a lot of our peers would be having the same challenges. And then you sort of look forward that we've had this period for all sorts of reasons, the pandemic, people having more money in their in their bank accounts, you know, lower interest rates, the changes to household formation, all of that's really boomed during the pandemic period. But we can already see that starting to come to an end. Uh, you know, inquiries have dropped off quite a lot. People's capacity to purchase has been affected very substantially already with the interest rate environment. Costs just keep going up. Uh, you know, it's probably not going up at the level it was previously, but they're not going backwards, not by any meaningful stretch. And so you're almost getting to a bit of a reset in what the market can actually deliver viably. And all that means is more people are pushed out of the, the cohort that can actually afford to buy something new or even even something established for that matter. And what we're seeing is people's borrowing capacity, particularly at the entry level, is dropping faster than prices are dropping. So they're not all of a sudden getting these great deals. They can start to you know jump into the market and get a foothold. They are actually going to struggle even more to get into the market. And you know, short of finding ways of actually reducing costs and costs is you know direct costs. It's the indirect costs through contributions. It's the indirect costs through time delays and so forth. If you can't actually start to wind some of this stuff back you're going to see this real viability crisis. And sadly, I think we're already there. I think it's too late for us really to do anything meaningful. So there's going to be a period where things just don't work and then hopefully it starts to unlock and we can start getting people into new homes again. And I guess that's been the the really important 
part along the entire way. As I said before, you know, housing crisis is a very human face. And at the end of the day, part of our industry's job is to provide people not only with shelter and homes to live in, but also to be able to provide them with an opportunity to get into the property market. And that seems to be getting more and more difficult. Absolutely. I think decision makers need to really acknowledge the important role that the development industry plays. You know, we get bashed a lot and it's something that I lament when actually we do so much, not just for the broader economy in the country, but also at a local level. I would love to see the day where developers are reviewed like they used to be, you know, with the the statue in the town square of the person who set up this place. You know, I love to remind people that you look outside your window and, you know, 94 Eight percent of what you see out there was developed by private individuals. It was government. Government doesn't own most of the housing stock. You know, in Victoria, it's at about three percent of all housing. I think Queensland's slightly better, but the vast majority of new housing, and importantly, affordable new housing, housing people have been able to enter the market into, has been developed by developers who then help foster and create communities. Why do you think we get a bad rap, Max? Well, bad news always sells better than good news. And you've had the occasional bad behavior, let's be frank. I'm not going to name specific examples, but people are well aware of them, whether it's politicians, whether it's particular developers. There are people who have done the wrong thing. The systems that we all play with are designed to find those things appropriately and make sure they don't happen. I guess the media loves to beat up a story around evil developers, greedy developers, and you know destroying the planet, that sort of thing, without looking at the other end, which is... We actually do deliver a pretty important community service at the end of the day, you know, where most of us are for profit, but we're delivering something that people want and need. And typically we do it more efficiently than what government does. And I think that dynamic is going to remain there a long time. So, you know, wishful thinking to have great property developer on the front page rather than greedy developer. And certainly not helpful when certain state premiers like to make those particular statements as well. Again, being a Victorian, we've had the the Premier of Victoria talk about greed developers through the windfall gains tax scenario. But the reality is we do a lot and we should be proud of what we deliver and the government should be much more willing to work with us as partners rather than bash us. Do you think that we have a role to play in terms of communicating the role that our industry plays better? We tend to to try to hide those good news stories. We're a little bit scared to stick our head above the parapet, aren't we, Max? Yeah, I think that's right. I'd, I'd love to see us do more on that front. It's going to be a challenging piece of work. Unfortunately, the sort of negativity, I think, has been around for too long to be able to transform that quickly. But you know, with a concerted effort, I think we could get there and just explain to people how important we are. 1.1 million people in the construction industry reliant on the sort of stuff that we do, the economic benefits, but also those social ones we talk about. There's nothing more important than putting people in a home, whether it's a rental home or, or a home that they own, but that's such an important part of, of life and we're the ones who deliver that. So we could be saying a lot more. And the parks and the open space and the libraries and the paths and the roads, there's a, there's a good story there. So perhaps that communication message is the first step along a journey to getting you a bronze statue. I have no aspirations for a bronze statue, let me just be clear. <laughs> There are probably some of my peers who'd like to see that. <laughs> We're just going to work out the location for it, Max, you know, across uh, three different states, which is your your chosen state on, on the bronze statue. Five, actually. Five, okay. Well, four, four states in the territory. There you go. Okay. Right. Well, even more choice for you. Maybe one in each. Maybe one. Let's not start with one. 
<laughs> now, Max, you know, obviously incredibly busy role at Intrapac, and for your sins, you also took on the role as national president of UDIA in November last year. I hear it is your career highlight to date. You know, just uh, working closely with the state CEOs would be nothing but joy and joy and fun, I imagine, Max. How do you find the role? And importantly, when you step down as national president, whenever that may be, what legacy do you want to leave? Yeah, well, I came in at an interesting time. And again, I never have this conversation without thanking my immediate past president, Simon Bashir, who had to do a hell of a job through the pandemic. It was a pretty challenging time for all sorts of organizations like UDAA, particularly when you know, National's main income was from a Congress we didn't run for two years. So you know, there was a huge amount of work that I don't think most people would appreciate behind the scenes that Simon did. So props to him. And you know, I was there helping out and we were able to put the, the organization into a really strong position through that period because, you know, there's always opportunity in crisis, and it made us think about how we set things up to be more robust financially, but also, I guess, more cohesive as a national unit. And that's really the bit that I'm, I think I'll be most proud of, is that we've restructured the organization to really involve the states to a much higher degree than what they were, and Kirsty sort of foreshadowed, and she's part of these regular meetings. We've got a national cabinet now, a bit like the federal government, albeit less dysfunctional. We hope, Max, that's the aim. We hope. Still <laughs> discussions, but we're actually doing a lot more in terms of sharing experiences and information between the states, learning from each other and working on several you know, really exciting national projects, whether they're around particular policy areas or if they're research and information and data, which is something I'm, I'm really trying to build up as well. Now. And I feel like so far it's succeeding. We've got some pretty exciting things that we're working on and some work that will be, I guess, trumpeting fairly soon in terms of some of the research that we're doing to really elevate our advocacy across the country. Incredibly interesting time too, Max, obviously with the federal election and and also how that played out. So I imagine that interaction with what is essentially an entirely new ministry is is also a key priority and, and part of your role at the moment. Yeah, very much so. It was interesting to see how essentially all of the shadow ministry that we're working with into the lead up of to the May election ended up taking on quite different roles come government time. So we've had to reestablish and rebuild some of those relationships. Some have moved sideways, so we've retained those relationships, but there are some, you know, quite new players, particularly in housing, which is so important to us. We had Jason Clare as a shadow for a number of years, but now Julie Collins in that seat. And so a lot of what we're doing now is really trying to build up those relationships with quite new teams, including all their key advisors in their offices and keep that advocacy work going. Max, there's always a degree of debate around the extent to which the federal government should play a role slash intervene in matters of housing and, and particularly on the supply side. What's your view on that? Where should the federal government and should the federal government be starting to intervene a little bit more in terms of whether it's housing targets or catalytic infrastructure funding? What's your view? It's important to acknowledge that the direct intervention that the federal government can make is fairly limited because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about does come back to those state planning regimes and those local planning regimes, and they can't directly intervene in any of that other than perhaps making some federal land available for development and for housing. But we do think that, particularly with what we've been seeing around all of the states where we've just seen 
those future supply targets nowhere near being met and you know really drying up in terms of future pipelines there could really be a role for a federal government to be much more active in ensuring that what is delivered by the states and by local governments or the territories does include a real dividend in terms of new housing supply and for example you've got the national homelessness and housing agreement you know that's a fairly large bucket of money that gets uh, distributed to the states in various levels and historically there hasn't been a lot of contingency in that it's basically been here's an amount of money you all get a certain portion of that and it's not been tied to any specific outcomes that we can un- that we understand to be very measurable and so that's one easy example where you could say as a federal government look you know we've got this money put a bit more into the bucket given the importance of housing at the moment and say well you know you're going to get a certain portion of this only when you actually achieve an outcome i.e certain amount of land supply or a certain amount of zone land or you've reformed your planning system to a particular level where it performs within certain parameters and that would be a really strong position for a federal government to take we've also talked to federal government around being a lot more involved in some of that enabling infrastructure yes i talked before about there being areas of land that are hypothetically available for development but really on the ground aren't because of servicing and access issues federal government could be a lot more involved in helping fund some of those projects as well to help unlock some of that supply in those areas which need them. That is absolutely critical for our industry, isn't it? it? You know, often we spend a lot of time and certainly in the media does talking about the really big ticket infrastructure items when in fact I spend most of my time talking about sewers, Max. So it's incredibly important in terms of, of opening up supply and we do need, we need more funds and we need much better coordination, I feel, in that area. Yeah, most certainly. And look, to your point, it's much easier to go and cut a ribbon on a $6 billion road or a tunnel extension. It's a lot more work to go and open 150 little intersections or interchanges or pumping stations, things like that, where arguably community would get a lot more value out of those, you know, smaller, more discreet, more distributed investments. They're just too hard for politicians at the end of the day to, to do. It's uh, it's about how expensive the project is. I've got the most expensive project, which is going to deliver the most dividend across uh, the spend. Uh, so it must be less glamorous, Max. A little bit. I have some ideas why that might yeah. be. <laughs> now, changing gears briefly, thinking back to a young 20-year-old Max Schiffman, so only a couple of years ago at best, Max, what piece of professional advice would you give a young Max? Well, I think I've followed the advice actually that I would would give myself. Excellent. Again, as in, I think I've done the right thing. And, and for me, it was really always just saying yes without necessarily knowing the answer to stuff before I did it. So people won't know this, but before I was at Intrapac, I ran a forensic and safety engineering consultancy. And it was one of those things that I just sort of fell into when I was studying at university because I was speaking to one of my lecturers. I wanted some work experience and he was setting up this new business. So I joined that as a student in the end, ran it for seven years. And that was, you know, really interesting and valuable educational ground for me to then, you know, take some of those things and apply them at, at Intrapac. But it's because I said yes to that, then I did all sorts of things, got to travel around the world, got to do international contracts that, you know, were quite bizarre. And I was also very young at the time. Uh, in my early 20s when I was doing all this. But it was just the fact that I kept saying, yes, I'll figure it out and backing myself to get the outcome. 
And that's something that I've carried through with me my entire career. I've always, if someone's asked me for assistance, I've tried to help. If I've been asked to you know, be part of something, whether it's an organization or a, an event or speak at something, I'll always say yes and, and figure it out later. And of course, you know, with the projects that we're doing, we've, we've taken on some of the more uh, complex projects around the country. It's one of the things Intrapac's known for. You know, we're probably a bit less risk averse than many others. And it's us trusting that we have most of the answers up front, but also that we can sort out the answers and, and the solutions along the way. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah, fantastic, Max. And you have said yes to a, a lot of things that we've asked of you. And one of those things that you have said yes to is you recently spoke at our developers conference, which was fantastic on a panel session. Now, what you probably didn't see behind the scenes was we were running Slido in terms of audience questions coming through. And a question that was posed to you that has intrigued me ever since was, who was your bet for winning the constructors challenge? So, do I detect a, an F1 fan? Oh, there's a bit of an F1 fan going. I was pretty happy with the result on the weekend. I'm a Max fan. Are you? Okay. Yeah, there's my name. That's just a name thing, Max, is it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay. Deep. Yeah, very deep. I like an energy drink too, so I suppose that works. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was quite happy though. The circumstances were pretty bizarre about uh, Max getting the world championship, didn't he? Yes, he did, which is great. Uh, and look, it's looking like Red Bull are unassailable this year. So I dare say they'll easily win the constructors as well. But, you know, props to Ferrari this year. They've, they did very well. They have done well. I've watched um, Drive to Survive. So I'm now an absolute expert on F1 Max. So no, I would never have thought anything else. No, no. After watching that, what more do you need to know? The drama. The mystery, yeah. And if you ask the actual drivers, they say it's all rubbish. But They do, they do. But look, it's great TV. It is. Yeah. Well, Max, thank you very much for your time. I know that you have an incredibly busy schedule and we certainly do appreciate your time and for joining us on Development Drum today. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Max. Thank you for listening to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Remember to rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. While you're there, please make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss an episode.